Welcome back to TanakhCast. This is episode 223. We'll conclude the book of Daniel with a brief summary of chapters 8 through 12 and follow with some thoughts about calculating and or debunking the end. In chapter 8, we're sliding again in the chronology back to the Neo-Babylonian Empire to the third year of Belshazzar's reign. And we're continuing with the concluding section of the book of Daniel, preoccupied with dreams and visions. In this vision, Daniel sees a ram standing on the banks of the brook of Ulai in the empire's capital, Shushan. The ram has two horns, except one horn is bigger than the other, and the ram begins to butt his head to the west, and then to the north, and then to the south. No animal can stand up to this ram except for one, a goat from the west with a single horn emerging from between its eyes. The goat attacks and strikes down the ram, and, quote, the he-goat became very great, and as it grew mighty, the large horn was broken, and four jutting ones sprouted in its stead to the four corners of the heavens. This goat gets so big that, quote, it grew up to the host of the heavens and brought down some of the stars from the host and trampled them, and it even damaged the commander of the host and disrupted the daily offering in his sanctuary. Daniel then hears one of the holy ones ask how long this trampling will continue. Another answers, quote, 2,300 evenings and mornings, and the sanctum will be made right. When Daniel comes out of this reverie, he seeks the meaning of what he saw, and, quote, look, standing before me was as the likeness of a man. And I heard a human voice in the midst of the Ulai, and it called out and said, Gabriel, make that one understand what is seen. And so the human form, the angel Gabriel, approaches Daniel, and Daniel is petrified, but he collects himself enough to take in the vision's meaning. The ram with the asymmetrical horns is Persia, and the he-goat is the king of Greece, whom we know is Alexander the Great. And after him, the Diadochi, the four generals, of which the fourth will do damage to the temple. Chapter 9 slides again back, or is it, forward to the first year of the Persian king Darius, son of Ahasuerus. Daniel, quote, came to understand in the books the number of years that, according to the word of Adonai to Jeremiah the prophet, were to fulfill the devastation of Jerusalem, 70 years. Daniel then proceeds to pray and beg God to act. He acknowledges that the Jews have basically been terrible and sinned without respite, and whatever fate we got, we totally deserved but then he shifts to make a plaintive request, quote, O master, listen, O master, forgive, O master, hearken and do it. Do not delay for your sake, my God, for your name is called on your city and on your people. At which point the same guy from the previous chapter, the archangel Gabriel, glides down and explains to Daniel how the calculations for Yirmiyahu's prophecy breaks down. It's actually seven times 70 years, 490 years in all, for, quote, for your people to work out the crime and to finish offenses and to atone for wrongdoing and to bring everlasting justice and to seal vision and prophecy and to anoint the Holy of Holies. And when that's done, after another 49 additional years, the redemption will begin. But after another 76 years, there will be a period of hardship when the holy city will fall into the hands of a foreign tyrant. But toward the end, quote, he shall make a strong pact with the many for one week of years and for half a week of years he shall put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering and the temple 
will stand desecrated and abandoned. Gabriel does not name any names, but once again, it's clear to whom this is referring. Antiochus IV, Epiphanes in the years 175 to 164 BCE. The final chapters, chapters 11 and 12, will deal with the end of days, the apocalypse. And chapter 10 introduces this awful vision with Daniel, now in service of Cyrus of Persia, in mourning for three weeks. Standing on the banks of the Tigris River, he looks up and sees, quote, Look, there was a certain man dressed in linen, and his loins were girded with pure gold, and his body was like chrysolite, and his face like the look of lightning, and his eyes like fiery torches, and his arms and his legs like the color of burnished bronze, and the sound of his words were like the sound of a great crowd. The people with Daniel don't see what he sees, but they're suddenly overcome with fear and panic, and they flee. <laughs> leaving Daniel to confront the man alone. The man calms Daniel, telling him that he was sent to bring him word of what will come. And this news comes only after a struggle on high. Quote, Do you know why I've come to you? And now I shall go back to do battle with the prince of Persia. And as I go out, look, the prince of Greece is coming. But I shall tell you what is inscribed in the writ of truth. And there is no one sustaining me against all those save Michael, your prince. And so in the concluding chapters of this book, the man will tell us what is coming. The Persian Empire will enthrone four kings, the fourth being most powerful of all, who will stir up the Greeks, who under the leadership of a warrior king will replace the Persians. After this great warrior king will die, quote, his kingdom shall be broken and divided to the four winds of the heavens and not to his offspring and not to the dominion that he had ruled, for his kingdom shall be uprooted and be for others besides these. From these four to command our attention, the king of the south, whom we would identify as the house of Ptolemy, and the king of the north, otherwise known as the house of Seleucus. These two dynasties will fight each other, make pacts, and even marry children and heirs to consolidate power, which won't stop the machinations and assassinations. But in the end, the northerners, that is, the Seleucids, will prevail. The land of Israel will fall into their hands, and the remainder of this vision will focus on whom we know is Antiochus IV Epiphanes and his attempts to Hellenize the Jews by force and desecrate the temple in Jerusalem. This will cause tension within the Jewish people between those who embrace the global culture of the Greeks and those who continue to keep God's commandments despite the decrees. Some are martyred to keep the sacred tradition alive, but there is no one that can stand up to the awesome power of the king and his armies. Daniel's vision foresees an end to this king, wars with Egypt that will sap his strength, and finally, quote, rumors from the east and from the north shall alarm him, and he shall sally forth in great rage to destroy and to slaughter many. He shall pitch the tents of his pavilion between the sea and the splendid holy mountain, and he shall come to his end with none to help him. In these troubled times, chapter 12 tells us, quote, Michael shall stand up, the great prince who stands over the sons of your people, and quote, many of the sleepers in the deep dust shall awake, some for everlasting life, and some for disgrace and everlasting shame, and the discerning shall shine like the splendor of the sky, and those who guide the many to be righteous like the stars forever and ever. In other words, the dead will rise for the final judgment. But this information, Daniel is told, should be kept secret, sealed in a book until the end time. And as the book concludes, Daniel sees two men, one on each bank of the river, and quote, one said to the man dressed in linen who was over the water of the river, until when is the wondrous end? The man in linen answers, but Daniel does not understand the reply, and nor does what follows clarify the response either. They are, quote, concealed and sealed till the end time. But Daniel is contented with the response, 
and the promise that he will see out the remainder of his days, confident that it will all work out for the best. In episode 173, I spoke about retroactive continuity, or retconning, specifically in the case of Psalm 79. Retconning involves adjusting, ignoring, or contradicting established facts in a usually fictional work by a subsequently published work which breaks continuity with the former. So here are some examples of classic and recent retcons. That was the sound of Darth Vader throwing Emperor Palpatine over a railing into his death in Return of the Jedi. But surprise, Palpatine is back three movies later for The Rise of Skywalker. Or there's this one. What the hell's the matter with you? You let him go. Cut him off in the lobby and call the cops. You could have taken that guy apart. Now he's going to get away with my money. I missed the part where that's my problem. That was the setup for that random armed robber killing Peter Parker's Uncle Ben in Spider-Man 1, but then in Spider-Man 3, it's apparently the Sandman that kills Peter Parker's uncle. Oops. Or how about Arthur Conan Doyle killing off Sherlock Holmes by plunging him to his death over the Reichenbach Falls with his nemesis Professor Moriarty, only to have him come back to life in a subsequent story. Elementary, my dear Watson. Or how Winston Smith's job in 1984 is to retcon history to reflect current political alliances between Eurasia and whomever. Or how Ian Malcolm, though declared dead in Jurassic Park, returns in the lost world. I'm simply saying that life uh, finds a way. Indeed. Superman Returns picks up where Superman 2 left off, pretending that Superman 3 and Superman 4, the quest for peace, never happened. The same was true with The Exorcist 3, it skips over The Exorcist 2, The Heretic, altogether. So in Psalm 79, when David allegedly bemoans the sacking of the temple in Jerusalem, it raises eyebrows because David didn't live at a time when there was a temple in Jerusalem, so he couldn't possibly have mourned its destruction, unless the psalmist was writing in a post-destruction period and put his words in David's mouth, or the editor of the Psalms, also editing in a post-destruction period, decided to include an elegy, etc., etc. Perhaps this is not retconning after all, but maybe projection, or one of those knowing winks at the audience. The book of Daniel plays fast and loose with chronology, setting its stories under various kings in a seeming random sequence. Daniel, as the early chapters indicate, arrived with the first wave of exiles, the exile of the 1% by the Babylonians in 597 BCE. He is mentioned in the book of Ezekiel, chapter 28, when Ezekiel taunts the king of Tyre, asking, Are you wiser than Daniel? Ezekiel might have actually known Daniel personally, as tradition recounts that Ezekiel too was taken into exile with the first wave. So, if Daniel was enlisted into the diplomatic corps in the third year of Jehoiakim's reign, that would mean he served Nebuchadnezzar II during his reign from 605 to 562 BCE. He also served one of Nebuchadnezzar II's successors, Belshazzar, the last Neo-Babylonian king, son of Nabonidus, king of the Chaldeans. 
who we talked about last episode, who dipped from the palace for like a decade due to personal issues. And when the Achaemenids took over in 539 BCE, Daniel served the Persians too. So perhaps chapters 1 through 6 came from the 3rd to 2nd centuries BCE, already whole centuries after the period and action described in the text. However, chapters 8 through 12, although also set in Daniel's time, clearly refer to a much later time, specifically the period of what we would call the Hanukkah story. That is, the years between 167 and 165 BCE, when Antiochus IV Epiphanes initiated a wave of persecutions and sought to suppress temple worship. For the casual reader of Daniel taking its timeline at face value, its prophecies and visions are uncanny in their ability to predict future events, the rise and fall of empires, kings and conquerors, murders and intrigues, and above all, how it impacts the Jewish people for good or ill. Excellent! But the prophecies and visions come with a robust set of predictions based on mathematics, of cycles and multiples of seven, something even the most incredulous reader could sink their teeth into. Kinda like the Torah codes. A 1994 scientific paper entitled Equidistant Letter Sequences in the Book of Genesis argued that for the first book of the Torah, which we covered in episodes 2 through 14, contained embedded codes that predicted events that occurred long after the book was written, and that these codes are, quote, not due to chance. This discovery or alleged acknowledgement of the Torah's divinity inspired Michael Drosnin's The Bible Code, which became a bestseller and undoubtedly convinced a whole bunch of people to become Orthodox Jews. Okay, it's going to get a little bit weird, but here's the upshot of the argument. Pairs of conceptually related words tend to appear in close proximity to each other in the Torah. They are, as the original paper authors argued, coded in equidistant letter sequences, or ELS. So if you say start with the first letter of a paragraph and read only every fourth letter, you will find in the string an identifiable word or two or three. Every text, the Torah, Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire or Wuthering Heights, whatever, they'll all contain many such codes. So the question is whether finding these codes with apparent meaning in Genesis is a deliberate message from God or mere coincidence. So to test this hypothesis, the authors of the original paper looked for the names of famous medieval rabbis and their birth dates. These rabbis were born well after Genesis was written, so if their names turn up and in close proximity to their birth dates, well, draw your own conclusion. What the authors found that in Genesis, as opposed to, say, a Hebrew translation of War and Peace, the rabbis' names appear closer to the dates than in other texts. Except that when you use alternative names for the rabbis on the list, such as, say, Rambam instead of Moshe ben Maimon, or Rashi instead of Shlomo ben Yitzchak, you find that the analysis of Genesis doesn't change that much, but spikes in war and peace. And with further data tuning, you could find outcomes with no statistical evidence of codes in any of the texts. And if you use a more historically reliable Torah text, you'll find that no book of the Torah besides Genesis shows any effect at all. Which brings us back to Daniel. 
In chapter 9, we get a series of mathematical formulae and locutions like seven weeks of years, which takes Yirmiyahu 70 years, which marks the period from his moment of prophecy roughly to the return to Zion in 538 BCE, and it expands it sevenfold to a stretch of 490 years, which brings it, you guessed it, into the neighborhood of 167 BCE. So perhaps the author of this text has included all the allusions to Alexander the Great, the Diadochi, and Teochus IV Epiphanes to wink at us, to say, you see, even at the time of Daniel, in the 6th century BCE, what would happen with the Persians and their successors, the Greeks, was destined to happen. And even though it was going to be tough going for a minute and the temple would be in jeopardy, it would all turn out okay. But... It could also be a different thing altogether, a knowing wink at the audience, a seeming backdating to show that calculations undertaken by a knowledgeable sage or prophet can yield palpable results. The problem is that we saw since Daniel's day, or the day of the unknown author of Daniel in the 2nd century BCE, that one has to fudge a little bit in order to make the math work, because, as in the case of the Torah codes, if it does, it looks awesome and boosts attendance at Shabbat morning services, or, conversely, if you have the math and it turns out wrong, oh, it's a bad look. And thus, it's no surprise that Rashi, for example, comes to the rescue and explains in his commentaries on chapter 9 how Daniel made his calculations and how, in truth, all the numbers do line up, and even though it seems that the figures are wrong, it's only because he started counting in one place, when in truth he should have started counting in another. But one is also cognizant of Tractate Sanhedrin, folio, page 97b in the Babylonian Talmud, when Rabbi Shmuel bar Nachmani says in the name of his teacher, Rabbi Yochanan, quote, Blasted be the bones of those who calculate the end. For they would say, since the predetermined time has arrived, and yet he has not come, he will never come. But even so, wait for him. As it is written, even if it tarries, wait for it still. The problem is that waiting is hard. But knowing how long the wait, it seems to make that wait easier. Even if the length keeps getting longer and longer and longer. If you like what we heard today, spread the word about TanakhCast. Tell a friend about TanakhCast over coffee. Send another friend an email or text, nothing fancy. Help your aunt who just got her first smartphone to download a podcatcher and subscribe to TanakhCast. And if you have a spare moment after all that, write a brief glowing review at Apple Podcasts. Apparently, it helps people who might be interested in a little Bible learning vibe this podcast. And it's also a nice thing to do. If you want to help in an even bigger way, support us at Patreon. Just search for TanakhCast at Patreon.com and pledge your shekels either on a one-time or monthly basis and receive special blessings from the Most High. I thank you in advance for that and encourage you to join us again in two weeks for... Episode 224, when we begin the Book of Ezra with chapters 1 through 3.